Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of John, the first chapter, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, From the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I don't, I don't think Mike said this, but just, just so you all know, you're all invited right after the service. Uh, next door, there's some food and, and snacks and stuff to celebrate the baptisms and celebrate life in Christ together. So uh, if you can, stick around. We'd love for you to. And then also... There are more baptisms on the 16th. So if your hope is in Jesus and you've not been baptized uh, as a Christian, we invite you to talk to us about what it might mean for you to be baptized on the 16th. And if you happen to come to faith in Christ between now and then, even even better still. All right. This is a passage that I, I feel like deserves seven hours 77 times <laughs> the next year and a half I'm going to preach seven hours I'm not gonna but it deserves that and the word became flesh and John 1 1 we were introduced to the deity of Jesus in John 1 14 we're introduced to the humanity of Jesus how those two things come together, the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus are at the same time a profound mystery and secondly, right at the heart of the Christian faith in God in the gospel. Grace, here's one simple way. We could mine this for ages and not exhaust this. One simple way, the humanity matters. The wages of sin is death, so the humanity of Jesus is essential for him to be an acceptable sacrifice. Here's one way for the divinity, that the divinity of Jesus matters. The sins of mankind warrant an infinite punishment because they are against every one of them, an infinite God. So divinity is essential for a sufficient sacrifice. But how how 
Can a being be both divine and human, both eternal and temporal, both unborn and born, both invincible and murdered, and on and on? In the simplest possible terms, John answers these questions in the introduction to his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Largely based on the first 18 verses of John, our passage that you just heard read, one of the clearest statements, the church, Big C Church, from the church on this comes from the Council of Chalcedon, for about 451 A.D., Consider these ancient words. I'm going to pray in just a second. We're going to get into the text. But consider these ancient words as a means of preparing your minds and hearts for the glory of Jesus that is revealed in this passage this morning. And if you're considering membership, it also happens to be the right answer to one of the questions on the application. So listen carefully. These are words we're not used to hearing. So you got to lock in, kids especially. It sounds funny. It's some funny language. But this is an awesome statement. If you've never heard it or if it's been a while, I'd really encourage you to spend some time this week. Pull this up. You can get it. Just Google it. But listen to these words as you prepare your hearts and minds. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in the Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance, there's an important word there, the Father as regards to his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards to his manhood. Let us us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but yet as regards to his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union. It's really good. But rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person, one subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Let's pray that God would help us to stand in awe of the mystery of this I want to hear some kids say this word right now, hypostatic union. Okay, and I want some of you, someone, to write a song this week using that term, or at least a poem if you don't have music. But let's pray that God would help us stand in awe at the mystery of this hypostatic union of God and man in one. And let's pray that in that state of awe and wonder, it's, it's an amazing Amazing reality. And in that state of awe and wonder that God would grant us through that state of awe and wonder that God would grant us fuller love and obedience. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for all of it. Thank you especially for this passage this morning where so much 
of your glory is revealed, where so much of our hope is rooted, where so much of the church has been strengthened. Truly God and truly man, please open our eyes or open them further. Open our ears or open them further. Open our hearts or open them further this morning to the glory that is here. I pray that I might be a a simple means to that end in the preaching of the sermon. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 1.14, just the first verse of our passage, is it's staggering in its claims. I've said this every week again. This passage is remarkable. The eternal word of God for four claims. The eternal word of God became flesh. The incarnate word lived among men, lived among us. In these things, the word revealed the glory of God in a fuller way than had ever been seen. And the heart of this incarnate word glory, heart of the incarnate word glory is fullness of grace and truth. Verses 15 to 18 then, reiterate and expand and hopefully stir our imaginations and rile up our hearts even more. Let's look at these claims. If all we had were the first 13 verses of John's gospel, we'd have something truly significant, but not at that time overly controversial. The eternality, the creative power, and the personification of wisdom, the wisdom of God, were not new or unique even to the Jews. Those claims were not what make Christianity different. They're true and they're remarkable, but they're not what make Christianity truly different. The first clause of verse 14 is a different animal, though. It is in many ways the very thing that makes Christianity an an entirely exclusive religion. That is, it is because of this clause that Christianity is either true and all other religions false, or Christianity is false and all of us who accept it are fools. What clause am I talking about? And the word became flesh. God became man. God became man, Grace Church. God became man. One being, truly God and truly man. It was universally believed among the Jews that God had existed eternally as God and that the Christ would one day come as a man. What was most definitely not understood is the reality-altering reality of the two being one. The significance of this will become increasingly clear as we make our way through this passage and even more so as we make our way through John's gospel and see this incarnate man God, live, interact, teach, pray. But for now, I invite you to be amazed, maybe for the first time, maybe re-amazed this morning by the reality that God became man. What's more, secondly, not only did the Word become flesh, not only did God become man, but the incarnate Word, incarnate Word came to live with mankind. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Condescending grace. What condescending grace, Grace Church. It is condescending and that it is as staggering as it is. The, the claim is that God became man. As staggering as the reality is that God took on flesh. It is not 
far behind that as a man, he had no external form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who has stars and galaxies as footstools, the one who commands myriads and myriads of angels, the one who holds all things together actively always, took on a normal human body and made his home among ordinary human people. Not in a place, not in, not in a palace, or on a throne, or among the powerful, but in a form and a manner that was entirely unremarkable. In fact, the word translated dwelt, do you see it? And the word of and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word translated dwelt refers to a tent. A more literal rendering might be something like the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And at the same time, this points back to God's tabernacle dwelling with Israel. It tells that here now is a fuller, the fullest yet expression of God among men. And also, Grace Church, is an indication that this would not be the permanent or fullest version of all. More was yet to come. There are some really nice, sturdy tents. They even have tents I've seen with holes for chimneys to go out of. So you can, I guess, have a fire and be out there in the winter. Not sure why you'd want to do that, but you could. But tents, by definition, are temporary and vulnerable and not kingly. But let's be clear on the fact that although Jesus' incarnation was certainly condescending, it was also another awesome dose of God's redeeming, reconciling grace. Let us never forget. Don't forget this. Maybe you never knew this. This is good news. If you've never heard this, this is really good news. If you've heard this, ask that God might rekindle in you a sense of awe and wonder at this. But make no mistake, be clear, Grace Church, that although Jesus' incarnation was condescending, it was also another dose of God's redeeming, reconciling grace. What do I mean by that? Grace, the, the greatest promise of God. Okay, that's a, big, that's a big way to start a sentence. The greatest promise of God. What, what comes next? Don't answer. Well, answer in your head. What is the greatest promise of God? I'm about to tell you what it is. Think. What do you think it is? And in your discipleship group, be honest. T- tell that you got it wrong and admit it. Uh, and, and tell, but what do you think? How do you think that sentence finishes? The greatest promise of God. The fullest measure of salvation is that one day there will be an unending, uninterrupted, undiminished, untemporary dwelling of God with man. That's his greatest promise. One day there will be no more tentness to our experience with God and the God-man, Jesus Christ. The garden is the first place we saw God dwell among men. Indeed, in the garden, we see grace that part of mankind's very purpose Right at the heart of mankind's very purpose for being is to dwell with God. The fall, however, displaced man from the garden, that is, from God's presence, from freely entering into his presence, and therein frustrated our ability to live full and meaningful lives. In love, though, God was determined to fix this, to reconcile us to himself and to restore us to fellowship with him. The tabernacle and then the temple 
give glimpses and hope of this redeeming work. And in the fullest way, our text tells us, in the fullest way since the fall, John 1.14 tells that God coming tells of God coming again to dwell among us. But what but, but get this, but all of that was meant to pave the way for the full, final, and permanent experience of God's presence that we read about. It's promised in the Bible, and we read about it in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God forever. You and I and all mankind were made to dwell with God, not merely at the same time as him or within the same universe as him or or even in the same vicinity as him, but in perfect fellowship with him. Not merely for a few brief moments or, or even for a long period of time, but forever and ever and ever without interruption. Be amazed, Grace, and change your life goals. <laughs> change them right now. I don't know what your life goals are, but if it's not this, change them. Change your life goals. Change your ambitions. Change your sense of self and purpose, who you are and what you're for. Change your understanding of the greatest treasure. Whatever those things are, this is what it's meant to be, dwelling with God. And in this passage, we see the reality of God with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Third, in light of those first two, the next clause in verse 14 shouldn't come as any kind of a surprise. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and here it is. And it is in that incarnation, in that co-dwelling, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Though his form was not outwardly impressive, Jesus came in and revealed, he he came in and revealed a glory that was unlike anything the world had seen since the garden. He came in the glory unique to the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, the light of the world, the eternal word sent from the Father. Jesus put the glory of God on display in coming in the flesh for all to see and savor in a way that no one had seen. And in a sense, not even Adam and Eve. This too is a pointer back to the Old Testament in in, in terms of imagery and reality. You may remember, you've read it, Exodus 40. In Exodus 40, the tabernacle had been completed and things had been done according to God's designation. And it says at that point, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In John 1.14, the glory of the Lord filled the Son as he took on flesh and tabernacled among us. Verse 18 makes that even clearer. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, however, has made him known. Jesus has made him known. In Jesus, mankind was given the fullest glimpse yet of the invisible God. In Jesus, God was made known in a manner which had only partially been revealed and much of which sin had caused us to miss and forget. Jesus, having eternally existed at the Father's side, came to make the Godhead known to the world in glory. No one else was able to do that since no one else 
had seen God or been at his side. Jesus alone as the Christ, the Son, possessed a view of his glory and shared in that glory. He alone, therefore, was able to do what John says he did. No one else could. John tells us that in coming into the world incarnate, Jesus made a new and fuller way for sinful man to see God, to know God, and to dwell with God, to fulfill the very purpose for which we were made, but sin had busted. And in that kind of glory, and in that is a kind of glory that is astonishing beyond measure. Grace, let me submit to you once again the simple fact that your view of God is entirely too small. Your view of the incarnation is entirely too small. Your view of the amazing grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ is entirely too small. God is greater than you could ever imagine, than you ever have and ever will. And we catch another glimpse of that in this short verse. May God make us increasingly eager to see all of this lived out in the life of Jesus as we work through the description of it in John's Gospel. We're about to transition from the introduction that sort of states all of these things to descriptions of the living Christ moving among us and working and teaching and performing signs and wonders and suffering and dying and rising from the dead on our behalf. May, we, may God make us all increasingly eager to see these truths that are just named so casually in the introduction lived out in the person of Christ. Here's the last one, the fourth and final clause I want you to see. Again, in just the first three quarters of the first verse of our passage for this morning, with a little bit of help from verse 18, John claimed that the eternal word of God became flesh. The incarnate word lived among men. And the word revealed the glory of God. As if all of this were not enough, he makes one more claim of unimaginable unimaginable magnitude in the final clause of this verse. And then expands on it in 16 and 17. You ready? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And here it is, full of grace and truth. 16 for it is his fullness that we from his fullness that we have received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ the claim that Jesus Christ the god man came full of grace and truth that's the claim and this claim has two keys that i need you to see as we wrap up this passage. Here it is. It is part of the glory that Jesus came to reveal. So this, the fact that he's full of grace and truth is part of this glory that he came to reveal. And secondly, it is the means by which we're able to see that glory. All right, let me explain both of those. That Jesus is full of grace and truth, that from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, and that grace and truth came through Jesus are all further descriptions of the particular glory of Jesus. What do I mean by that? There's a general sense in which we can all nod our heads at the fact that Jesus is glorious. It's just, it just means, in generic terms, that he possessed a greatness, a majesty, a splendor beyond the norm. That, that, that's what it means in general terms. But we're right to say, well, what does that actually mean? What, what form does that glory take? 
What does that glory consist of? What specifically is it about him that is great and majestic and splendid? A significant part of the content of the glory of Jesus is the fact that he is full of grace and truth. There is absolutely nothing false about him. He is true. There is nothing in him that fails to perfectly conform to truth, because he is truth. Everything he is, says, feels, believes, and does corresponds to the reality that God authors. Similarly, Jesus continues to continually exudes unmerited favor to the world. Constantly. He, he never doesn't exude unmerited favor, grace to the world. The very fact that you are not in hell, that I am not in hell, that all people are not in hell right now is entirely owing to the grace of God in Jesus. God's patience with sinners, even believing sinners, is exclusively tied to the saving work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. The fact that things are never as bad as they could be, and they can they get pretty bad sometimes. We got a few tastes of that in the last week as a church. But the fact that they are never as bad as they could be, which we call common grace, is only because Jesus' glory consists of an ending grace. And of course, anyone has been saved, redeemed, reconciled to God is only because Jesus is full of grace. And so when you consider Jesus, John invites you to consider his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father. And when you consider his glory, Grace Church, John invites you to consider the fact that part of what makes it up, part of what it consists of, is perfect truth and unending grace, fullness of grace and truth. All right, but there's there's another piece to this. There's another aspect to the grace and truth that filled Jesus. This aspect is embedded in the words, we have all received. What does that mean? More than simply the content, more than simply the display of his glory, as remarkable as that is, the grace and truth of Jesus, hear this, I try really hard to say this well, I I think I'm close. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I say it as well as you need me to, but I think I got close. Listen to this grace. Listen, listen. The grace and truth of Jesus is also the means by which God has given mankind to apprehend and experience and delight in that glory. Grace and truth is the glory, and it's also the means by which we can see it as glorious. Last week I asked you to consider this. This is one of the most important questions you'll ever get in your life, how the very Son of God, I'm just going to reuse some of John's titles from this introduction, how the very Son of God, the light of the world, the eternal word, the means and aim of creation, how this being could put on flesh, stand in front of us and not be recognized, not even be recognized as God, to say nothing of not celebrated as God. Our passage for this week only further complicates that question. How could the God-man stand in front of us and us not even know that he's the God-man, much less give him the honor and glory that he is due? How is that possible? In more practical terms still, how can your heart sometimes be numb to this? 
More practical still, how can you walk over to your neighbor after church today and say you would not believe the glory of God that we were able to participate in and the baptisms and the singing and the preaching of one of the most sweet passages in all the Bible. Let me tell you about this Jesus that you might believe and be saved. And like, yeah, the Vikings are on. And they're losing. So I, I don't got time for this. How does that happen? If this is all true, and it is, how does this Happen? How, how can we be blind to this and deaf to this and numb to this? The answer, part of the answer we saw last week in 113. Why is that? Or how are some able to and others not? The answer is, at least part of it in John 113, is that only those who have been reborn of God are able to see God as God. There's a rebirth that needs to happen. Apart from that, we can't see it. In the final clause of verse 14, and then into 16 and 17, we get another piece of the answer. So here's how salvation comes. Here's how you go and share the gospel with your neighbor, and they receive it in faith, or they don't. Here's how it happens. Somehow the truth of the gospel comes to us. Somehow, through an evangelist, a a tract, a sermon, some kind of YouTube video with the gospel in it, reading the Bible itself. Somehow the gospel comes to us in truth, the true gospel, and through it, through the gospel, the grace of God comes upon us, causing us, what we saw in verse 13, causing what verse 13 says to happen, namely to be spiritually reborn of God. And then that new birth allows us to see the truth as truth and trust in the truth where it was a matter of indifference or folly or anger, by God's grace, it becomes the power of God. And then in that, our our trust or faith in the gospel, the grace of God unites us with the saving work of Jesus. And so here it is in four words, truth, grace, truth, grace. That's the difference. Truth, grace, truth, grace, which is really grace that the truth would come to you. So it's kind of like grace, truth, grace, truth, grace. (laughs) So let me say it again, just so you don't miss this. This is the answer to your question that you didn't know to ask, but now you do. The truth of the gospel leads to regenerating grace, being born of God. Regenerating grace leads to understanding of and and then faith in the gospel. Our eyes can see. Jesus, Jesus talks about having eyes to see and ears to hear. That's what this means. That happens to us. God does that to us. And we see, oh my goodness, How did I miss that? Get this, get this. Regenerating grace leads to understanding of and faith in the gospel. Faith in the gospel is the means by which God imparts the righteousness of Christ to us and then justifies us and declares us not guilty. Grace, truth, grace, truth, grace. That's the answer. And so we pray, God, fill us, fill us with grace. Fill us with truth. Give us the truth and give us the grace to see it as truth and love it and trust in it. Well, to make this even more clear still, John highlighted the contrast between the law, which came through Moses, and the grace, which came through Christ. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Moses brought the law and with the law, condemnation. That's not to say the law itself was sinful or or bad, only that... In our sin, we could never keep it. It was good and right and what we ought to do, but in our sin, we couldn't do it. 
It's kind of like me explaining that the best solution, you've got a health problem. Let's say it's a really serious health problem uh, of some sort. And I say, hey, here's the solution. Just, just, do, just run an ultra marathon every day for 37 years and your health problem will be gone. Sheesh. All right. Well, I mean, I guess that would work maybe, but I can't do that. No, no one could do that. And so in whatever sense it might have been good news, it's not good news because it's impossible. That's kind of like the law is for us. We need something different then if we're ever to experience healing. The law in revealing the path of holiness also reveals the sinfulness of our sin and our need for grace. Jesus brought what we need, grace and truth. We'll see this in a number of ways in Jesus' teaching and ministry, but here John lays the groundwork for what follows. And here's the point. The point is that grace and truth are our greatest needs and that they are found in abundance, full. Jesus was full of grace and truth and grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. Grace and truth are the content of Jesus' glory and the means by which we're able to see and delight and trust in it. That's awesome. All right, here's my conclusion. Not long ago, my truck needed some work done on it, and so happens to need it again, but different story. It needed some work done on it, took it into the mechanic, uh, and before he called me up, said it was done, before giving me the bill, he said, I want to explain what he did. He said, I want to show you something. He took me out and he, he showed me the old distributed cap, showed me the old uh, wires and plugs, which evidently were original from 96, and just gave me a sense of what he was working with, what he was dealing with, and seeing these things totally corroded and, and, and failed and the, everything was cracked. And it, it just what followed made more sense, the bill and all that stuff. It just made more sense. He showed me what he was dealing with so that I could make better sense of what he had to do and how much it cost. Well, in a very real way, uh, with the same basic motivation, just in sort of the opposite order, that's the relationship between the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, which we've just made our way through now, and the rest of John's Gospel. A mechanic showed me the problem first. He, he gave me a, an actual picture of it by holding, holding the parts up that he'd replaced. And then he explained what I had just seen secondly with the parts list and the laborer and all that stuff. John explained the significance of the person and ministry of Jesus first in the verses we just saw, and now he's about to show us, to show us what that looks like in Jesus. He gave us all the categories just now to make sense of what we're about to see. You ready? I'm going to list them. Here they are. You should write this down. You, pre- eh, you shouldn't write it down. There's too many. Uh, but it, but pull up the... Pull up the sermon manuscript from our website later. Stick this up somewhere. You know, sit in the same spot and put it on the back of the head of the person in front of you. So that each week as we work through John's gospel and he, John holds Jesus up, here are the things you're looking for. 17 of them. Jesus is the word of God. Look for that. See where you see that. He has eternally existed with God. Third, he is the second person of the Godhead, the very Son of God. Fourth, God created all that has been created through Jesus. You're going to see all this put on display in the narrative accounts of Jesus' life. Fifth, Jesus is life. Sixth, Jesus is the light of all men. Seventh, these are the things John has said explicitly in his introduction. Number seven, the light of Jesus cannot be overcome. It's going to look like it is, spoiler alert, 
It can't. Number eight, God sent many prophets promising that Jesus would come, the last of which was John the Baptist, whose job it was to announce that Jesus was here. That's next week. Verse 19. Number nine, although, or though this was, all of this was true of Jesus when he did come, the people he'd created, the very people he'd made and came for did not recognize him, neither Jew nor Gentile. Number 10, those who did receive him were given the right to become children of God. Number 11, the ability of Jesus, or the ability to receive Jesus comes from being born again of God. We'll get to that quickly. Number 12, Jesus became a man, truly God and truly man. 13, Jesus lived among men. 14, in Jesus, the world was shown the glory of God. 15, Jesus is and is full of grace and truth. He is grace and truth, and he's full of grace and truth. 16, Jesus gives grace and truth to all who will receive it. And lastly, Jesus makes the invisible God known. These are the 17 claims John has made in his introduction. These are the things that are going to be put on display in the person of Jesus in the next, the rest of the gospel. So having come to the end of the introduction, beginning next week, we'll see all of those things lived out in Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. Buckle up. Pray earnestly. Pray that God would grant you the grace to see and the, the truth revealed in the gospel so that you might hope in the truth and receive the saving grace of God. Pray for that. Pray also that having received the grace and truth of Jesus, your sense of the all-encompassing claim it makes on your life would rise. In short, pray that you'd come to recognize Jesus as the Christ and find life, that you'd be entirely awed by the glory of Jesus so that you might live and love as you were made to do.